Hi there, uh, this is Tanya Tadashova, this uh, Almas Capital, and today I have as a guest Drura Parish, founder of uh, MakeTime, Almaz's portfolio company uh, that merged with uh, the company called Zometry, and uh, uh, this company recently went IPO. Uh, so today we're going to discuss the wave that uh, the company actually rode when it started. So. Um, both economical and technological. So we already mentioned that it's a marketplace, so the supply-demand dynamics is very important. But uh, as you said, that the software side is uh, the technological side should be from the beginning, and it defines the journey a lot. Mm -hmm. So can you please explain how did it happen? So what was the role of uh, technological side to, in this equation? Yes, I can. Um, and probably much better now than I could then. So, um, make time arose to solve a main, one main problem, which is just differential between capacity and capacity utilization. Technologically, what it sought to do was displace the 13 steps that somebody would have to go through to, to make a part, just in like white space garbage land. So like previously to make time resometry, if you wanted to make a part, right, you would have to first find the place. Second, then you would have to like send them the file. You'd have to discuss the file. There would be some back and forth. There might be a fax, a CB radio call, right? There could be flares shot out, smoke signals, whatever it took. But the point was that there was 13 steps in order to get a price. From one supplier. From one supplier. And not only that, going through all those steps, then you had up to 256 steps while the part was in production to find out how the part was doing. So as you can imagine, like, you know, going back to through the Industrial Revolution up through like 1920, Henry Ford, you know, modern machine lines or, you know, assembly lines into like, you know, post-war, like 1950s, that was just a tried and true model. And it built a lot of people, right? or you know brought a lot of jobs to people in a lot of different towns all across the united states and the world but somewhere around mid 90s right into the 2000s as the internet started to rise you started seeing increasing importance of smaller batch sizes but a greater proliferation of SKUs. and so when you have that kind of quad intercept problem you can't wait and go through 13 steps because market timing is everything and testing the market's everything. And then you can't wait a trailing 200 plus steps to understand what the status of that part is because chances are that product's already been phased out of like market you know, marketability while you're just waiting to hear when the part's coming. So from the beginning, you know, make time took the, the stance that like you have to solve one, going out to get the price, that's one thing. But two, how do you automate how do you get this communication cycle? Just like, where's my part? What's it doing? What's it like? Because if you look at like company structures and people that manage part production, or if you look at like, you know, mechanical engineers or like quality people or production designers, there's so many people doing commodity level jobs, right? That are not necessarily accretive to the overall business function. And it's not like to disparage them. They're just too smart to be picking up the phone. I mean, we're talking to people with like, mechanical engineering degrees from Stanford, Purdue, that are just like, where's my part? So we put a lot of effort into just like, you know, just simple things like, 
auto timing email responses or like signaling like you know where like sending an email where is the part and just trying to embed that so that like we didn't have to focus on that part of customer service in the part production or in the part life cycle. Mm -hmm. Zometry very early on was very attuned to the demand side that you have to provide like a singular point, a singular transactional moment that these two people could come to, which is the first part, right? The, thir the 13 steps. How can you get one price like that's either market-based or you know, production plus or cost plus model, whatever that is, so you shrink that down? So if you put those two components together, then you have an extremely robust, like full cycle engine, right? It's not perfect because like, you know, as the rate of production, you know, starts to proliferate and starts to get more differentiated, there's always going to be problems that are like atypical, but at least it gives you the foundation of like, you have to have a price and then there's communication around the production of the part. If you have those two fulcrums in the marketplace on both sides, then you can start to build around it, right? Technologically, at least start to build services on top because you've stabilized the transactional flow. And that's one thing that was never there. But if you, if you, if you talk about process automation and workflow automation, that's basically what you just described, mm -hmm. it can be in very different business models. So mm -hmm. you didn't choose to do SaaS. So you, you, you uh, what, what was the, uh, the main driver of actually choosing the marketplace mm -hmm. model, the fragmentation of the market, uh, the, uh, what you just mentioned going horizontally mm -hmm. further uh, in terms of just the wave of industrial revolution, some other parts of market structure? Yeah, so the, the hardest thing, we've discussed this a little bit, is adoption. Yeah. And to, to push onto a group a new model of pricing, like you have to pay to use a service, is fine. It's not that they're not attuned to it. But the biggest problem for SaaS models in this world are you have such a large user group or a large stakeholder group on both sides in order to get this adopted. So if I went and I was like, hey, here's an all-in-one pricing suite with you know communication package. So I go in at the, the project engineer side on the demand side then they take it up to whoever their financial sponsor is. Then they take it up to their information sponsor. Then, so it just starts to get blah, blah, blah. But if you go down to a marketplace, just like a lot of marketplaces, it's portable. And so you can put it into the hands of a project engineer that just wants to get their best part made now, make a name for themselves, right? Pay for it on the card, their you know, pro card, procurement card, just because it's a part, right? and just see where it goes. But they get to say, hey, look, I found a new source outside of our, our, our own supply chain that's you know, giving us 98% quality or higher, like 98% on time, and it didn't cost us anything. And so you know, the dynamics are, on the supply side, they're used to competitive pricing and like, you know, in doing more you know, increasingly over time to, in order to be at the top of whatever bucket it is to get the job. So those things, you know, they benefited the total you know, model and the fact that you have to have a high degree of quality, which means you have to have market competitiveness on the supply side, and you have to have a high degree of response, which benefited the demand side. But that's also, so basically what you're describing is that you suggest for them a new workflow, mm -hmm. but you don't impose it on them, mm -hmm. so you don't try to integrate it for all the orders, mm -hmm. just for a part of it, and it can grow, of course, further, mm -hmm. but uh, then the question is liquidity. Mm -hmm. So if it's uh, for them just to test and it's small and they don't really, like, uh, they're not afraid of trying it, 
then they usually don't do huge volumes and then you have to have a variety of suppliers. Mm -hmm. So was it a problem? Was it hard to get to the level of liquidity on the market? And uh, again, was it more on uh, just signing more suppliers or was it uh, providing more demand for them and increase inside one, one account, mm -hmm. increase the volumes? So that, that is the hardest part of all of this. So You thought I would ask easy questions. Yeah. So the, the supply thing, you know, in order to, to make this possible, it had to have some kind of standard. And so we embraced that an economic framework was the best way to enact standards. If you perform a certain way, you get a certain price. But then that's hard to do if your demand side's low. And so this is why I talked that the merger was perfect for the balance of it because Zometry was you know, so demand heavy, we were so supply heavy. Literally when the two met, it was just like water, like in the desert. And I keep saying that just casually to you, but, uh, but it was because now you could effectively test, go through the cycles and do all the things that were necessary to get people to perform a certain way. And then you could start to fade out the tailing in, the, the bad actors in the marketplace. But then as people in, I remember being on the other side, this is pre-merger, I think the, the moment where we're like, Zometry's figured something out was when one of their suppliers went over a million dollars earned. And this, was, this is a critical threshold because in the American machine shops, the balance is like two and a half million dollars in revenue, like for these shops. So it's like, they're giving a million dollars. So we're like, okay, this is fantastic. Then we started, the, the merger conversation. And so then if you could start to repeat this, at least to like a very successful cohort, right? Top 25 percentile, whatever it is, then the marketplace starts to take over. And so we started seeing, you know, a lot of good action and activity once that those two entities happened. But it really was difficult because for a while there was crickets, yeah. you know, and that's the hard that, part. That actually sounds that you're solving chicken and egg problem by having separately a chicken and an egg and mm. then merging them. And so you can't always do that. No. And I think that's an interesting case just for especially venture back models here. It's hard to focus on both simultaneously economically because there is a certain amount of scale that's required. I think in especially larger like industries like, you know, manufacturing is just enormous. Machining is just enormous. And so there's so much market pressure around just the supply side. Like, oh, let's just go get back in the defense, you know, supply chain. Let's just go, you know, try to get more aerospace parts. So when you're like young and you're, you're converting out whatever demand that you can, right, that your curve isn't as steep as venture is used to or would like to be used to, right? Just because like you have to be sparing because suppliers cost you a lot of money to get and the demand side costs you a lot of money to get. And it's hard to get the two kind of moving like an engine at the same time. Yeah, that's true. But uh, Marketplace also has this uh, network effect dynamics and it doesn't necessarily just on one side or another. It mm -hmm. can be cross. So uh, have, you ha have you tried those before the merge or it started to work more after the merge? Again, were they more uh, internal network effect uh, just that mm -hmm. drove them to increase their volumes? Or is there actually an external when, when having more manufacturers drive the others to join? Mm -hmm. So it definitely started working exponentially after. And both of us experienced two very distinct, dissimilar, but similar problems. One was not a lot of repeat on one side, 
so typical kind of marketplace problem, right? Where you have one customer come on, but disintermediating and moving on and not doing much of the other. And then on the other side, um, it was very similar, but also dissimilar actually now that I'm thinking about it. We had two-way competitive suppliers. So we had suppliers that were buyers that were actually cannibalizing the marketplace. But the way I'm saying this is actually a benefit and is dissimilar, those actually became the benefit for us and started driving network effects. Like just at a very small scale for us because a supplier also subs out parts to be produced. And there was a critical moment in our timeline where that used to be it's combative within the marketplace. And then all of a sudden it snapped and it turned friendly where they realized as we were you know, moving our transaction fee up and they were getting combative, but they realized that they could also sub out and become more profitable if they put parts on our platform to go back in. Yeah. So there's a, you're right. But like that's, a, that's again, that's again because of the tools, right? So it's, it's the technology that actually providing them this value. Mm -hmm. It's not even, so it's a both, of course. It's a getting more orders, but it's also like adjusting to using these tools and seeing mm -hmm. value in them. That's right. And so one thing back to the power of technology that I would just say, one horrible mistake that we made that we later replaced with technology that brought a, a great benefit was we thought it was very hand-to-hand -hand, and we thought it was like very human-centric but then what we slowly started like so for example I'm gonna give you this job or like here's the RFQ or like pushing RFQs but the minute you start playing with the dynamics of price then you like it doesn't matter how hard you're selling or chicken or egg that like you can move a supplier to take something if the price is good and so then it becomes a law of averages and then it becomes a different a totally different kind of pricing mechanism that you start to work but with. it's actually very interesting how in this new economy's world this pricing starts to act so it usually this marketplaces start with very differentiated pricing mm -hmm. just getting quotas from different providers and you can compare them and choose somehow quality wise or speed wise or just find find the balance yourself between price and the quality and everything but then uh, it with the dynamic pricing it kind of changes mm -hmm. because the, uh, the 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 demand side doesn't even care about that they they want the result mm -hmm. and one price that's right and it should be the best price for them so this is this is also like uh, the ch changes the uh, economic value and dynamics uh, again driven by technology because you need it to to optimize mm -hmm. the price and uh, understand uh, what the demand actually needs but it's also then the question of how differentiated the the result is mm -hmm. so how do you standardize it so you already mentioned finding some standards mm -hmm. but how does it work in, term, in terms of one price, one result, not really caring who did it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the magical transformation. So where this thing became a product is that no matter what, the box that you came with an X on it from Zometry represented as little frustration as possible. And so that started, you know, just like if you think of a product, you know, product-led business, or let's just say where it started to transfer, I'd say on the demand side where I think people started realizing the magic of this is that project engineers usually are like confronted with cost plus pricing yeah. or some kind of BS like construct of pricing. 
And then all of a sudden the demand side started to realize it was market-based. And so the minute that the algorithm comes to support the fair balance that like this is what the market's willing to pay, as a supplier this is what you should do, normally that's perceived as negative, but it created efficiency, right? So now the supplier doesn't have to think as much as like, is this the right price? Is this the best price? So zometry becomes the market, like as all good marketplaces do. Like, this is what you should pay for a price of this size of this material, right? And then bring it back to the buyer. They just know that whatever that the algorithm is setting to, right? It's adjusting to what the constraints are. Like COVID comes up, stuff's gonna be more expensive, right? Aluminum prices skyrocket, things are gonna be more expensive. Yeah, it's like search. That's exactly. And so now, all of a sudden, you just have a fair balancing, but you always know that this part's gonna come out. So all those anomalies are out. And then the operational burden of calling and checking and whatever. So then you have like this shadow cost that disappears. And so market on your side, quality on your side, and then you're, you have a gross reduction in labor costs on both sides, the more that yeah. you support this kind of platform. Yeah. But does it, does it mean anything in terms of industry focus? So uh, is, it, is it in some way, is there any correlation? For example, if you sign more automotive clients, does it mean you need to get certain suppliers to get the required mm -hmm. standardized level of quality for them? Yeah, you do. I mean, there's, I mean the, the weird dumb part of all this too is like, and technology just slaps this around, is or certifications. Yeah, like, so standards. Uh, like again. ITAR for this and like ISO for that. And like, and it's, it's funny, those are like enormous value adds, like just like as a badge of honor. But then now all of a sudden it just becomes like a search meta. Yeah, absolutely. Like, are you, can you do this? Yes. Yeah. So are you, are you proud to have parts of parts made on the platform of Zometry uh -huh. in a car, in Tesla, or in, uh, what, what's your favorite one? What is my favorite? Probably one that, um, you would never, never expect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we've made a lot of car parts. We've made a lot of rocket parts. We've yeah. Made so, a lot, yeah. so many parts are in space. Yeah. We're 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 everywhere, and um, but I think that the thing that's still near and dear to me is when we first had our first breakout supporting part for a young hardware startup that could have never started without zometry. Oh yeah. Yeah. So production's great and you can make a lot of money from production. But the whole premise of this business, as, as I said earlier, is to accelerate the rate of innovation. And to make possible things that are not possible. That's before. right. So you think about you know, the whole Amazon analogy. Yeah. Now if you have 50,000 machines at your disposal and you can incrementally turn them on, but now to make physical parts. And so this one was just a, it was a genetics business that was coming up with a very complex thing that I can't talk about to look at some complex things that the other quotes that they were getting were $110,000, but on our platform was like a couple of thousand dollars, make or break. And yeah. so, and now they're like, of course, the most powerful, amazing business ever. But, but that's like what it's about. It's not about like, are we in a Ford? Are we in a Tesla or whatever now? It's like how many of the new Fords and Teslas and those hezometry now been responsible for. Yeah, that's a great mission. Yeah. Thank you for, for, for sharing it with us. You got it, anytime.